Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Introducing my guest today is no easy feat. Joan Crone is truly in a class by herself and has been so for more than 50 years. Some of her accomplishments. Joan co-founded the New York Times Home Section, was the first fashion reporter for the Wall Street Journal, editor of Avenue Magazine, contributing columnist editor-at-large at Allure Magazine. Joan's written upwards of a thousand articles, authored four books, and if that's not enough, in 2017, at the age of 89, she wrote, directed, and produced her first film, Take My Nose, Please!, the subject, plastic surgery, a topic she knows firsthand. While at Allure, Joan literally invented the plastic surgery beat. We're going to talk much more about that and the making of Take My Nose, Please, but first, a few more Joan Crone facts. She graduated from the Yale School of Drama, where she majored in costume design and became one of the first costume designers hired by NBC TV. She was recognized as a force behind the first East Coast exhibit in the United States of pop art. That was back in 1962 and the subsequent visit of Andy Warhol to Philadelphia four years later. He came with a program of underground films along with the musical group The Velvet Underground. In partnership with a friend, Joan produced limited editions of multiples by artists Robert Indiana and Roy Lichtenstein that can be found today in top museums. Enough with the accomplishments. Let's meet and get to know this human dynamo. Joan, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. I'm exhausted from hearing all that. <laughs> you know what I was thinking as I was writing your introduction? Your obit in the New York Times is going to go on for pages. Yeah. <laughs> but they haven't pre-interviewed me yet. I'd like to go back to the beginning. Tell us about Joan Crone before you were Joan Crone. Where'd you grow up? Oh, uh, let's see. <laughs> I have to remember. Um, I grew up in uh, Forest Hills, Long Island, mm -hmm. when it was uh, kind of dirt roads, one-horse town. And uh, I was able to play in the street, and if you had a car, you could park on the street. Yeah, those know. days have long gone. And uh, had a tree in the backyard that I would climb. And then uh, we briefly lived in... Great let, Great Neck, Long Island, and then when I was about 13, my family moved to Manhattan uh, because I think my father didn't want to commute to work, and so we moved to Manhattan, and uh, I grew up, you know, there in my teen years. And you stayed ever since, and this is where you've been ever since, no, basically. No, no. I uh, When I uh, got married the first time, I moved to Philadelphia. I married a Philadelphia doctor, mm -hmm. and... Um, I lived there for 20, 21 years, and then I'm, oh, it's so embarrassing, but I... Oh, um, <laughs> you're among friends. <laughs> um, I went to my 25th high school reunion and um, met my high school sweetheart, and uh, in two years, we both uh, left our spouses, spouses and... And I married my high school sweetheart. That happens a lot lately as people kind of reconnect on Facebook and things right. like that. You were just ahead of your time. That's, that's all. That's true. You know, I mentioned in the introduction that you went to the Yale School of Drama. I would have to assume that back in the day, there weren't too many of you in college. Is that fair? You mean women? Women. Yes, that's what I <laughs> no, mean. No, no, there were quite a lot of women in my class. Were there? Yes, absolutely. The Yale School of Drama is a graduate school. Where did you go undergraduate? Well, I only went one year to Carnegie Tech. Mm -hmm. In those days, it was called Carnegie Tech. Now it's Carnegie Mellon. Right, in Pittsburgh. Um, 
and Yale, the drama school, takes a few people every year that may not uh, have graduated from college. So that didn't work against you? No, I mean, it, it, it was fine, except that I was the youngest in my class or the second youngest in my class mm -hmm. and quite naive. And so, you know, with some, at, at the time, it was 19, I entered there in 1945, and uh, men were coming back from the war, and uh -huh. they were much older. But there were a lot of women in the class, absolutely. But I didn't realize until I read in your bio that one could study costume design. There's acting, and there's directing, mm -hmm. and there's um, technical studies, you know, lighting, scenic right. design, costume design. It's famous for its design department. So, and what was the attraction for you and design? I wanted to be a. I was fascinated with the Ringling Brothers Circus. Okay. The one thing my father did with me was take me to the circus, <laughs> and uh, once a year we went to when Ringling Brothers Circus came to New York. Mm -hmm. Daddy took me to the circus, and I had this idea that I wanted to be a circus designer. And design the costumes, Yeah, obviously. design the costumes mm -hmm. for the fabulous, you know, the circus parade in between Act 1 and Act 2. There's always this fabulous right. circus parade. You know, when you're that young, you really, you ha you're very unclear about careers, but you, you just kind of hook on to right, something. Right, right. You say, oh, that's what I want to be. That sounds great, right. you know. Mm -hmm. and, but you have no idea what it entails or anything. And so when I went to Carnegie Tech, the course was called Costume Economics. Huh. So I thought that it was going to be about costume design. But when I got there, it was just liberal arts. And then maybe in the fourth year, I would be able to uh, study design. Oh, how and odd. I, um, so at least I got a little liber liberal arts. But Carnegie Tech also had a great drama school. It still does. And they are known more for acting. Well, Yale is an all-around, you know, technical, I mean, every department I guess I didn't in realize theater. That. Mm -hmm. If you study uh, playbills, and especially if you're in regional theater, you'll find that every person, <laughs> every other person who is in the playbill for whatever they did, whether the stage manager or the lighting director or whatever, or the actor, has gone to Yale. Yeah. You know, Yale just, like, peoples of the world with, <laughs> with all these people that mm -hmm. uh, can do everything that's involved with the theatrical enterprise. Anyway, all my friends at, at Carnegie Tech, uh, most of them were studying acting. And they said, oh, come on, Joan, switch schools, switch from Maggie Murphy. That was the name of the school. I was in Maggie Murphy. And um, come over to the drama school. And that was an undergraduate course. But the problem was, if you went to that to that Carnegie Tech drama school, mm -hmm. you had to be in plays, no matter what you were studying. You had Even to act. Even if you were studying design, you had to be in plays. And I know nobody believes it, but I was painfully shy. <laughs> <laughs> I have conquered that. Apparently. <laughs> right. But So everybody laughs at me when I say that I was ever shy. I could not open my mouth in public. <laughs> now, did that have a real impact on you? Do you think that that's what kind of propelled you? Well, no. You? So I said, 
I want to go to a drama school because I want to study theatrical costume design. Right. And where else could I go where I did not have to act? So you you just even bother. You said I'm I didn't getting out. Bother. I'm, I'm out of here. And you know, I read no, I read some you know different applications from schools, and I said, oh, I could go to Yale, mm-hmm. and they don't insist that you be in plays. They take very few people. Uh, who don't have an undergraduate degree, but they take a few. And you you do the master's degree course, but all you get is the certificate. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. it's the same work. And for years, I didn't even know how to put it on my resume because you want to be accurate and you don't want to say that you have a master's degree when you don't. Right. And then finally, I was getting kind of annoyed by that because it's sort of embarrassing not to have any degrees. <laughs> so... <laughs> Finally, I wrote on my resume, master's degree equivalent. That was pretty clever. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so Take us on the trajectory of Joan back then in costume design as to how you managed to move into A, art, and B, journalism. I never set out to reinvent myself. You know, when I speak to young people about, you know, what they want to be when they grow up, they always believe that they can set their course that they have some control over their life. And from my own experience, you can't control your life. It happens, and you have the doors open, and either you go through them or you don't, right? And so after I graduated from Yale, I went to Europe, and I studied. I stayed there for six months. I went to the Fontainebleau School in, 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 uh, outside of Paris. They had um, courses for American students, and I had some design courses. And I went over for a summer program and with a friend, and it was 1948, and everybody that I knew was going to Europe. Then the war was over, and the troop ships were being converted, and students were going on the troop ships. Hmm. and going to Europe and studying abroad. And so I did that. And then, uh, thanks to my parents, who were trying to get me away from this boyfriend, (laughs) (laughs) they allowed me to stay longer, and I traveled with my friend, and she and I, we traveled all over. We took courses. I tried to get a job and whatnot. And that at some point, my mother said, you're coming home. Yeah. Right. And then I came home, and then I... My goal was to get into the United Scenic Artists Union because you can't work on Broadway. And you can't do costumes probably for the circus unless you're in the the union. union. And that's not changed. Mm -hmm. So I studied for my exam. It's a two-day exam for costume design, three-day exam for scenic design. And I took the course and I passed it. So I became a member of the United Scenic Artists, which was one of the great accomplishments of my life. Mm-hmm. I got a job to sew all the costumes in an off-Broadway show that was called Man in the Moon. And they were 17th century costumes. They were already designed. I had to make every costume from scratch all alone. Wow. And I was and I got a hundred dollars for this job. Oh my right. <laughs> and I did it. We wanted to work on Broadway. That's all we thought about, Broadway. But everybody ended up in television because television was just starting. Starting. It was so new then. 1948, Mm -hmm. 49. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all my friends were working at CBS and NBC. And so they were trying to get help me get a job at at NBC. Mm -hmm. So 
um, when I came over to NBC and Rose Bogdanoff, who was the head of costumes there, uh, was interviewing me, and then she was busy on the phone. And so I started going around and talking to all the people that I knew. And then she said I was a flibberty gibbet. Which means? <laughs> Which means I, was, I wasn't concentrating on work. I was too social. Ah, okay. So she you wasn't going to— You weren't focused. Gonna, right, exactly. But then she heard that I was working day and night all alone, making about a dozen 17th century costumes from scratch. Hello. And then she thought I had a very good work ethic, and so she hired me at $35 a week. And wow. That's what we made then in uh-huh. NBC TV, uh-huh. and, I, and then I became one of those girls, or well, there were men and women, wearing a clipboard around your neck and running around and doing breakaway costumes for Milton Berle. I was in charge of Clarabelle at Howdy Doody. Oh, wow. And then there were a lot of playhouse shows so the actresses would come in, and they would bring six dresses and six pairs of shoes, and the costume designer, who was in charge, and that would be me on certain shows, would say, okay, you'll wear that dress and that scene and that dress and that scene. They, they, there was no stock. And the only thing we could afford to rent were policemen's uniforms. <laughs> and so this was getting very difficult, you know, to do costumes on these all these dramatic shows. Uh-huh. So I had done some jobs on 7th Avenue. I had designed snowsuits on 7th Avenue, and I had been a sketcher. Your fashion career is eclectic right. at the right. very least. And I had been a sketcher for Tina Lisa, who was a, a, a prominent designer at the time. You know, I'd had all these little tiny jobs. And so I knew 7th Avenue. So I went back to 7th Avenue and went to Seal Chapman, which is a, was like the Donna Karen of her day. And I made a deal. I said, if you'll lend us clothes for the women on these dramatic shows, we'll give you program credit. And I made the first deals in television. Wow. And if you see old shows, you'll see Betty Furness's dresses by Seal Chapman. And it's all because of you. Courtesy. So I always feel that that was my great contribution to American culture. Well, I think that's pretty potent. I really do. So my parents had managed to get me away from my boyfriend, and I did. I married a doctor in Philadelphia, and I moved to Philadelphia. And I was offered a job just at that time to be the assistant to the costume designer at the Ringling Brothers Circus. So your dream came true. Yes, but I didn't take the job. Because? Because the job was in New York, and uh-huh. I would have had to commute every day, and I didn't think I could do it. I mm-hmm. said, I'm sorry, but I'm getting married. Oh, my God. Was it devastating it, for you yes, to have to was, give that yeah, up, that it dream? Was, it was devastating. Mm-hmm. What would have happened if I'd worked for the circus? Well, I would have married a clown. <laughs> <laughs> or the ringleader. I don't know. <laughs> but any, anyway, I came to Philadelphia, and I, you know, I was somebody who had— who had worked, mm-hmm. and it was unusual. Yes, that was my It was point. very yeah. unusual in 1950 when I got married to have— How old were had, you? I was 22 when I got married. Okay. And I had some experience. You know, I'd worked for NBC for a year, and I'd worked off-Broadway, and I knew lots of people in the theater by then. And um, so I had aspirations. Forget about aspirations. What about expectations that you would become a wife and mother? 
in my family, <laughs> I, that was expected. You're going to be a wife and you're going to be a mother. That's my point. Uh, but in my mind, I was also going to work. Okay. And I actually have worked all my life. So mm -hmm. even when I moved to Philadelphia, I started working. I, I started working for the Mummers Parade in Brooks Costume Company, and I was fired. You know, I've been fired many times. I was fired because I wouldn't put glitter on my sketches because at Yale they told us it was sleazy to put glitter <laughs> on our sketches. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to paint it. And then I was designing for small dance companies, and then I did my own apartment, and then everybody loved my apartment, and before I knew it, my apartment was in the newspaper and and I was working at a furniture store selling the latest modern furniture that nobody had ever heard of called Nolan Herman Miller. And um, I know I was, you know, selling classics at that time that would be in the Museum of Modern Art. So, you know, these things just happen. People come along, they see your apartment, oh, you ought to work for this store. You know, it's not that I set out to be a lawyer and I became a lawyer. I hear you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So these things happen to me, mm -hmm. and that's what I say. The door opens. Either mm -hmm. you go through the door or you mm -hmm. don't. The opportunity comes. You say, okay, I could do that. Mm -hmm. That's something to do. And then suddenly I'm, I'm in business with another friend who I'd made in Philadelphia, who had gone to architecture school, and we're in the design business together. We're doing decorating. And one of my clients was Inez Gottlieb, who was a producer at WCAU Television. And she had been asked by the YMYWHA in Philadelphia to bring it back to its cultural glory. In other words, they had a big gymnasium, and it was very popular, and people joined the Y for the gym. But in its earliest days, at the turn of the century, that particular Y had been a cultural center of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And the board of directors asked Inez, who's a brilliant woman, to do something to bring culture back to the institution. So she started bringing together all the intelligent women, women that she knew mm -hmm. and started something called the Arts Council of the YMHA. And she said, Joan, would you join? So I said, okay, mm -hmm. I'll join. And before I knew it, I had so many skills that they needed because of my theatrical background that I was... I was running the poster program and the, all the communications, and I was uh, on the drama committee, and I was recruiting, and I was on the art committee because uh, I, I went to Yale, and I thought I knew something about art. <laughs> right? right. So, well, listen, <laughs> and you had street cred, as you said. Right. Yes. yes, and uh, even though I was shy, I had charm, and I was able to bring in a lot of people to um, to support the organization, I found that I was very good at convincing business people to give us not money but services. And again, because I knew I'd already had experience in trading, <laughs> tr trading yes, something yes. Mm -hmm. for credit. Right. I started going to printers and binders and whatnot to, because we had to have mailing pieces. And so then I had to learn the, tr the printing trade. <laughs> we had committees in every one of the arts, and then we had a program that we set at the beginning of the year. 
And then we had patrons and whatnot. We set different levels of membership, just like arts organizations do. And I had all these people <laughs> that I gave front row seats in return for whatever they were for doing. For their services, you know? yeah. And I found that I was – that I – had an ability to convince people <laughs> to do things. Apparently, yes. And I was beginning to find my voice and beginning to be less shy. And it was a wonderful experience for me personally because it, I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed it more than being a decorator. I hated, I hated being a decorator. <laughs> but you knew there was something else for you on that year. Right. Were, I mean, I like designing, and I like designing interiors, but when you have clients, you know. <laughs> sure. And yeah. you have yeah. to educate them, too, and bring them along whatnot. So, yeah, that can be And you trick. have to learn business. And so I learned so many skills. And then my husband was a doctor, and I was running his office. And, oh, my God. And, and I was – so I was learning a million yeah, different Yeah, you were really skills. a sponge. It's the Jonas yes, sponge. I, was. I think since I was very young, I had this dream about being a career woman. I didn't know what a career woman was. But I and I can't tell you how or who inspired your me. mother. Clearly, wasn't right. My mother had been a secretary to the most famous couturier in New York, Madame Frances, before she got married. Mm -hmm. But of course, when she had children, she, she gave home. that up. Mm -hmm. You know, her mother thought that it was. She didn't like her working in the theater because those people in the theater mm -hmm. are not, mm -hmm. you know, don't have a good moral. Right, and right. in fact, she always would tell the story that she came to work one day and Madame Frances had a gorgeous townhouse on 56th Street that still exists. She had the whole house and it was, um, she made custom clothes. And uh, one day my mother came to work. She was the private secretary. And she found Madame Francis in bed with Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the kind of thing that my grandmother did not approve of. No kidding. Oh, right. what a great So story. my mother retired when she got married. But she became very active in uh, the local Jewish community and built the synagogue and what. You know, so she was a dynamo. Right. And I think that's why I was shy because she was. On but on the other hand, in terms of how you're relating your past, the acorn doesn't fall right. far from the tree. I'd like to kind of move into the journalism okay. part of your life because I mentioned that you have been so many places with so many publications. Was that, too, a natural act for you, Joan? Again, the door opened, and I walked through it. What happened was... We have to stop a minute and say that my husband was very involved with an organization called Project Hope, which had a hospital ship, which every year went to a different third world country. So we were involved as a family in that, and I had two children. Meanwhile, I'm in the Arts Council and whatnot, and I'm also involved, you know, with his putting on uh, charity events for his hospital and whatnot, and... He went to Ecuador, and then the whole family went to Nicaragua for a summer. And then um, we went to uh, Sri Lanka, which at the time was called Ceylon. In 1968, we went to Ceylon. We took our children. Other Hope children were there. And uh, a terrible tragedy happened, and my daughter, who was 16 at the time, um, got a sinus infection and died in four days. Oh, my God. In Sri Lanka? In Sri Lanka, oh on God. the Hope ship, and nobody could save her on the Hope oh ship. Oh, my God. Right. It was a 
turning point in my life. No kidding. So I came back, and I, by then I had resigned from the Arts Council because they refused to give me a desk and a phone. And <laughs> I was the chairman of the whole organization, and I was bringing in national publicity and whatnot. And um, that was in the Andy Warhol days yep. and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I was doing all this troublemaking mm -hmm. with modern artists, pop artists. So I was looking for a new career. I was actually looking for a new career. And I had no idea what to do. I was a despondent, and I was in deep grief and of whatnot. Course. And three young men came to me because I knew the parents of one of them. And they said, we're starting an underground newspaper, and we'd like you to be the society editor because you know everybody in society and everybody in the underground, mm -hmm. which is true. I knew a lot of people in Philadelphia because— well, you were out there. For I was out sake. there, and <laughs> yeah. I knew Andy Warhol. Yeah, right? hello. okay. So I said, "Well, I can't write." One of the guys is named Lee Eisenberg, who went on to become the editor of Esquire magazine. Oh, no small potatoes <laughs> there. Mm -hmm. And he said, "Everybody can write." I hmm. said, "Okay, I'll try it." That was the door that opened. My best girlfriend was growing marijuana in her backyard. <laughs> <laughs> And she was having a hash harvest. <laughs> and so I said, oh, well, that sounds like a perfect story for an underground newspaper, paper, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so I went to the harvest, and I wrote the story, and I called them up, and I said, you know what? I think I can write. And they said, oh, that's too bad because we've lost our backer, and we don't have a paper. I said, oh, that's too bad. What shall I do? And they wanted to take it to Philadelphia Magazine. Well, Philadelphia Magazine was uh, one of the early city magazines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I happened to know the editor because we used to play bridge together. So I called him up and I said, Alan, I've written a story. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Drop it off at the office. I'm on my way to Paris. I'll read it when I get back. <laughs> An hour later, uh -huh. I get a phone mm -hmm. call from one of the editors, Nancy Love who went on to be the editor of Q Magazine. Yes, I was just going to say that name is very familiar. <laughs> and she said, Alan Registorian loves it, and he's going to publish it. Wow. I screamed so loud you could have heard, heard me in space. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the day my life changed. I found that writing was just like designing. Uh, and nobody act. understands that. To me, you do your research, and then it's just a different medium. You pick up a pencil and write words instead of drawing a picture. You know, I was empathetic. I don't know. It just, it just suited me. And obviously, sort of one thing led to another in terms of articles and getting your name out there. And, and, and then, I guess, after writing on some level is the next step, editing. You know, become an editor. Well, in the beginning, I thought I knew nothing. You know, I, I knew how to spell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but Alan would let me sit behind him when he edited my articles. And I would just watch as the pencil moved and uh -huh. he crossed something out and put something in. He was a brilliant editor. Anybody who knows Alan Halpern will tell you what a, what a brilliant editor he was. And I just learned. I just, I absorbed it. <laughs> to write a story, let's say a hard news story, for example, to cover a fire or to uh, write a political story is very different than writing something feature-ish. And did one 
type of writing appealed to you more than another? I said, what shall I write? After this, my, I didn't realize when I wrote my story about the hash harvest that he had been preparing for several months a major piece about the use of pot in the middle class. Was that ubiquitous back then? Well, it was just the beginning. It was one of the earliest stories about that. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea that I had kind of locked in to a cultural event, a major cultural movement. And so he, my piece ran side by side with this big investigative report that somebody else had written. And so I said, so what shall I write? He's, well, the, the publisher said... Well, Joan used to be a decorator. If Joan would write decorating stories, we could sell some advertising. And so I, so I said to Alan, I want to write serious things. <laughs> that seemed frivolous to you. I, I said, I don't want to write frivolous things. Mm -hmm. And he sat me down and he said, I'm not telling you how to do this, but people work hard to earn their money, and then how they spend their money is just as interesting as anything mm. else is politics and war and mm -hmm. whatnot, mm -hmm. and just find a way to do it your way. I said, well, I don't want to write about decorating with a staple gun, <laughs> which, of course, I could have been Martha Stewart if I had, but mm -hmm. I didn't. And so my first story was Mayor Rizzo. Frank Rizzo was the mayor, mayor of Philly. Philadelphia mm -hmm. and a very controversial right. figure, mm -hmm. former police chief. Mm -hmm. Mayor Rizzo built his dream house. And by the time my story came out, Mayor Rizzo did not move into his dream house. And I'm not proud of that. I didn't set out to take him down, but it was discovered because of my story and then the, a follow-up by the Daily News that he could not possibly have afforded to build that house. And right. the, I remember um, this. And the, um, the contractor eventually moved into the house. Uh, but one of the most fun things was, and that's because of my observational skills, was that when I went out to interview the contractor, I came back to the office and I said, Alan, you'll never believe what I saw in the contractor's house. He's what? I said, he has stained glass windows. But the, the the images in the stained glass windows are guns. No kidding. Right. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> so they discovered that that story scored higher than the cover story on Arlen Specter, who at that time was the di district attorney. Before he became senator. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, 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 the more I think about this, I feel so badly for the person who's delivering your eulogy. <laughs> <laughs> But I really want to. I want to move into the writing for the plastic surgery. Well, these things you see, these things all happen very naturally. One and then, kind of, and not, yes, one thing led to, to another. another, and it was nothing that I. If you had said to me, in fact, I went to a lecture, in because uh, I was a doctor's wife, I was invited to a lecture when I was about thirty years old about plastic surgery, and I remember clearly. 
there was somebody talking about a facelift, and I looked at the woman next to me, and I said, not me ever. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine you had to eat some of those words. I did. I (laughs) ate those words. When I said you co-founded the home section, that was part of your past. It was probably a natural act to do at the time, right, even though these are big deals. Well, yes, I started at New York Magazine. I started at New York Magazine, and I brought them a lot of design stories. And, you know, I did the first story, in, in New York Magazine, I, I was trying to get out of Philadelphia because by then I was living in New York but commuting to Philadelphia, work, writing for Philadelphia Magazine. Okay, and I was trying to get to mm-hmm. New York mm-hmm. to get a job in New York. And New York, everybody said, oh, my God, Joan, you, you belong in New York Magazine, your style of mm-hmm. writing everything about the way you think. So... I finally found a way to meet the managing editor of New York Magazine. She was giving a lecture, and I introduced myself. She said, but you live in Philadelphia. I said, no, I don't. I live in New York. Mm -hmm. I just work in Philadelphia. She said, well, send me some of your your stories. And then she she read the stories, and she said, oh, my God, I want you to meet Clay Felker. And so I came in, and I met Clay, and I brought him 16 ideas. Wow. And and he went down the list, and the other one was... Soho, the new art neighborhood. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, my God, I love it. And when he went down, he checked 16 ideas that he loved, and he said, you're hired. Wow. And that was that. Then I just called up Alan, and I said, I'm sorry I quit. <laughs> <laughs> By then, I had had a real job at Philadelphia Magazine. I had a title, and I had a salary and whatnot. And I said, I quit, you know, because I can't keep c- coming back. I want to work in New York. Right. And so then at New York Magazine, I had all of these, this background. I had this background in art. I had this background in design. design. Mm-hmm. I had this background in theater. Theater, yeah. Right. And so. What a package deal. Right. And then, and I was also now, you know, not such a bad writer. I was a pretty good writer. Mm-hmm. And I also had a lot of experience in death and dying Mm. and grief. Mm. And that's what he allowed me to write about. So at New York Magazine, I was the chief design writer. Also, every once in a while, I would get a story in about death and dying. So uh, I wrote about the first hospice, the design of the first hospice in America. And I remember that day, Clay took me to lunch, and he said, what are you working on? And I said, oh, I'm working on this story about this thing called hospice, and they're building it in in, uh, Brantford, Connecticut. And he said, what are you going to call it? I said, I'm going to call it Designing Death Store. He said, that's a terrible title. (laughs) He said, call it a, A Better Place to Die. I say, oh, my God, you're so right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I mean, so that's how I learned. I Amazing. learned by making mistakes, right. by having a bad idea and not being afraid to be corrected. Exactly, exactly, and just being open to so many right. things. I think that that's what's so fabulous about you and your life. Well, you can't plan. I was just going to say that. As much as people think that they can and hope that they can get on this path and this trajectory, clearly what defines you so much is your willingness to be flexible. In the back of my mind, I was always the, that that girl who always wanted to design costumes on Broadway. And I would watch the Emmys or the Tonys or the Oscars, and I would always see who won the costume mm-hmm. design award. And golly, I, I wish that I had stayed. You know, it was always that sort of regret, regret yeah. that little regret. But uh-huh. still, I didn't realize 
that all the time I was doing great. Exactly. I was having a great career uh, that I didn't choose, but I fell into, and I was just trying to make the best of it. (laughs) Well, you did did a hell of a job. I want to talk about Take My Nose, Please. Okay. You take a course at the School of Visual Arts in film, correct? No, that's not really the way it started. All right. Really the way it started is that I moved from writing about design at New York Magazine and then at the New York Times where I was one of the two people who started the home section. Right. Okay. And then I wrote a design book called High Tech and I wrote uh, another design book called Home Psych, The Psychology of Decorating. And after that, I felt I had answered every question I had about why people cared so deeply about decorating. (laughs) And I said to Clay Felker, I really would like to get out of design and I would like to write fashion now because I had this costume back or history of fashion Mm -hmm. background. And he recommended me to the Wall Street Journal at that time was looking for a fashion reporter that they had never had. They had had a retail reporter, but never a fashion reporter. And he recommended me, and I got the job. Well, well, what a okay, surprise. Okay, so I went, mm-hmm. so then I'm writing fashion, and I'm writing makeup also. I did, did a few stories about makeup. And then I get a job at um, Avenue Magazine being the editor-in-chief, and then I leave that about 1990, and and I don't. It, it, I'm always in these places where I I think I'm a failure, and I and I, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And somebody who had worked for me said, "I want you to meet Linda Wells. She's starting Allure magazine at Condé Nast. It's a beauty magazine, and I think she should know you." And so I went to lunch with Linda, and Linda said. I'm starting this beauty magazine, and everybody says, how much can you say about lipstick? <laughs> and it, it's going to fail. They, were all, they all predicted mm-hmm. the magazine that would fail. That would be just so thin. Right, because mm-hmm. what, what could you say? Right. right. And I said, oh, my God, Linda, there's so much to say because I just did this book about the psychology of decorating, and there's so much overlapping sociological research about appearance and the appearance of your home. Mm-hmm. And I know so many sociologists that I could bring to the table. And so she hired me to do the psychology and sociology of beauty. And before I knew it, I was writing a story about shopping for a facelift, which I knew nothing really, knew nothing about, except that I had had some over-the-transom stories sent to me when I was an editor mm-hmm. at... Avenue magazine, and I realized that they were all like the writer was getting a free facelift for writing uh-huh. the story, and that there wasn't really good coverage of this subject, uh-huh. but that was all kind of hypey. I went out to do the story shopping for a new face and ended up having a facelift. So you got one for free? No, no, I paid for it. And you had a facelift. So I had that- a facelift, and I call Linda up as I'm recovering, and I'm feeling so fabulous. I'm feeling so How happy. old were you when you had the facelift? I was about 62. Okay. And I looked so great mm-hmm. even two weeks after. Mm-hmm. And I called Linda on the phone and I said, Linda, this is the worst covered field in style. There's nobody is covering this like new journalism. 
fashion is well covered, design, food, everything else is covered. Well, this is not. I want this beach. Mm -hmm. She says, okay, it's yours. Take it. And before I knew it, again, I'm not a genius, but I've had a lot of experience. I understand. Life experience. Yes, yes. Life, death. Yes, you know, sure. Right. Grief. Another another natural act for you. Right. That's the way you and, have to describe and, this. And uh, you know, empathy. And I have empathy for women who feel bad about their face. Mm -hmm. And so many people make fun of women who feel bad about their face. And then it. I mean, it's a subject that is treated so different. It's so different in the in the media. It's all about outing people, criticizing people. Disparaging. People's, right, exactly. And I started writing very powerful stories, some of them not pleasant. Mm -hmm. You know, a woman who murdered her plastic surgeon, oh, a woman who died on the operating table. Right. Um, you I, didn't hold back. I did everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I did good news and bad news. I did scientific developments and that finally they one day they they gave me a column uh, a monthly column which then became a, a every other month column and then <laughs> whatever but it was called scalpel news and then I that was scientific and I you know then I made contacts in the industry and knew what was happening what was coming next and then you know, I was there for the beginning of Botox, Botox. and mm -hmm. the beginning of collagen and mm -hmm. the beginning of lasers. And mm -hmm. then everything was happening in the 90s. I was right there. And then suddenly I become the only reporter in America who is covering plastic surgery full time. Now, remember, I had been now, let's go back. I had been married to a general surgeon. I'd been very involved in medical things. I would watch my husband operate. Mm -hmm. My husband in Philadelphia was helping Charlie Bailey, who was one of the first heart doctors. When he was doing heart surgery, which was just at the beginning in the 50s, mm -hmm. he would call my husband and his partner and say, come over at the, to my hospital and help me with this operation. Then I would go and watch heart operation. So I had written about death and dying from every aspect. And I don't faint at the sight of blood. <laughs> I can watch an operation and not faint. Mm -hmm. Okay, so who do they send to cover plastic surgery press conferences? Every mag beauty magazine or woman's magazine sends the junior assistant editor. Mm -hmm. She's just out of college. And when they show pictures, before and after pictures, or they show anything that looks the least bit medical, these gals close their, cover their eyes, and they put their head down and say, I can't, can't look watch at this. this. Yeah. And I say, I can watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I had a huge advantage. I hear you. I right? hear you. I didn't know when I married a doctor that that was going to be... One of the bonuses. Yes. Take my nose, please. That's another example of a natural act for you, clearly, because you'd written about it for so many I've years. I've been writing for 20, for 20, by then, 20 years writing about plastic surgery. But okay. it's still, even in this day and age, still has, you know, ugh, you know people roll I'm, their eyes about yeah, that. roll and, the eyes. And you wanted to kind of say, this is all... No, no, no. Oh. No, no. There's never any agency in anything I do. It's all by mistake. Okay. Even that, even the film? Right. Even the film was by mistake. I, Because of my position at Allure and being known all over the world, actually, for my writing about plastic surgery, because there wasn't anybody else doing it consistently the way I was, 
I became a talking head in other people's movies. So I'm a talking head in a movie. I'm at the opening, and I'm sitting with my another another best friend. And after the movie ends— What was the name of that movie? It was called um, Youth Knows No Pain. I lean over to Susie, my friend, and I say— I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I start writing down I- ideas for documentary films. And I had a long list of ideas. So I had met the producer on that movie, and I went to her and I said, I have all these ideas for a movie. I'd like to make a movie. And, and you know, she, yeah, well, you know, it's not as easy as it looks. Right. But that certainly wasn't going to stop <laughs> right? you. And this particular idea that I had, you know, I had many ideas. That is going to cost you so much money, you can't do that. It was a film that involved a, a lot of film clips. And so she said, but if you want to know about how you buy film clips, you have to meet Amy Shule. And Amy Shule is the queen of film clips, of archival uh-huh. film research. I said, okay, I'll meet Amy Shule. So I look her up, I call her, and she says, well, I'm going to be giving a lecture at the School of Visual Arts call so-and-so and and say you're my guest and get on the list. So I call so-and-so, Nikki something, Nikki, and I said, Nikki, I'm a guest of Amy's. She said, well, and Amy's not talking until March, but, you know, the program is on right now every week. Why don't you come next week? I said, okay, I'll come next week. And next week was Penny Baker, one of the most famous documentary filmmakers. And then after I saw Penny Baker, then she said, why don't you come next week? And why don't you come next week? And they kept inviting me one week at a time. And you kept absorbing. And I kept, I said, okay. And by the time I got there, I'm taking notes and whatnot. And all these, they're young people. It's a master's degree program. And it's just one course in a big master's degree program. And this particular course is just meeting famous documentary filmmakers. What a great yeah, education. What, you know, mm-hmm. an education mm-hmm. for me, and I'm old enough mm-hmm. to appreciate it. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. By now, I'm in my 80s, <laughs> and I'm schlepping down to the, this place in the snow, and I'm remembering, and I had a bad knee. Or, you know, I have two fake knees by now, but at the time, I only had one fake knee, and my other knee was killing me. <laughs> but that and didn't I'm stop saying, you. It's snowing. I can't get a cab. <laughs> What the hell am I doing Doing. every Thursday night? But I kept at it because I loved it. It was just fascinating. And so then I had an idea for a movie, and I started on it, and I assembled a little team and whatnot. And then that was about somebody in Australia, and I decided, no, no, this is not a good idea for a first movie to go. You know, you, you don't have any money to go to Australia. What are you doing? And I stopped. But I still wanted to make a movie. And I'm sitting after my knee operation with my cousin, Bill Sheft, who is a writer for David Letterman. He's a comedy writer, and his wife is this stand-up comedian. And they're visiting me because I had knee surgery. Right. And I want to entertain them, you know. So I said, you know, the only people who are honest about plastic surgery or comedians, because I wrote that in my book. I had written a book at when I was at Allure, not for Allure, but for myself. The book was called Lift, Warning, Fearing, and Having a Facelift. And I had a paragraph in my section on Hollywood that the only people who were honest were comedians. And I named names. And Bill looks at me and he says, well, Joan, 
that's your movie. There's your film, yeah. And I said, oh, well, that's a good idea. And I went to my computer, and I sat down, and it was like, you know, like a Ouija board. And it just came out. Take my nose, please. It just came out. (laughs) And I typed it, and I said, oh, my God, that's a great title. And because, you know, Take My Wife, Please is the most famous punchline in American comedy. If you look it up on Google, Google. you know, uh-huh. uh, yeah, Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. And so every anybody that I would say the title of my movie is Take My Nose, Please, people would say, oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. I said, oh, that's a winner. And that's how I got into it. I mean, completely by accident. Well, I mean, what's your point? Your whole history is My been... whole history is by accident. Maybe that's what they'll write on my tombstone. <laughs> the film has generated a lot of buzz, and you must be incredibly proud of where it's... I'm thrilled. (laughs) I'm thrilled, and I'm kind of flabbergasted, because when I started, everybody was kind and skeptical, right? but quietly skeptical, so I could see that they were just kind of humoring me. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure, Joan's going to make a movie, Joan. At 89. You know, Mm -hmm. well, it was 89 when it was finished. Right. But but it was started at, let's say, 85. Okay, and I'm 90 now. Uh, Hello. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I knew that they were, you know, they doubted me. And I doubted myself. I mean, you know, how can I pull this off? And, uh, you know, several months into it, I woke up in a cold sweat. I mean, I had already started filming. I had a sizzle reel. I had had a party to raise money and raise not one penny. Mm. And I said, how the hell am I going to do this? I woke up in a cold sweat, I remember. I wrote down in a little notebook, what are you doing? You're out of your mind. You've got to stop. And I called a few key people the next morning, and I said, I'm out of this. I got to quit. And each one said to me, don't quit. You're enjoying yourself. And you'll pull this off. You're going to do it. And then by then, I was getting kind of embarrassed. I was really embarrassed. And then when I finally set my mind to meet Sheila Nevins at HBO, I wanted to prove, because she was skeptical too, and I wanted to prove to her. And she became this goal to impress Sheila Nevins. I never cared if she would buy the film. Right, but you'd have her. not buy it. But I wanted to impress her. And I heard recently that she said, I always knew Joan would make it, would do a great job. <laughs> ah, there's, there's your just desserts, right, right? Right, So that's it. Well, Joan, I mean, we could go on for days. Uh, there's I'm sorry. So, so I much, talk no, oh, too no, much no, now. No, you no. see, I'm not shy. No, no, no. There's no apologies here. I think what makes the most sense is that at some point you'll have to come back <laughs> because there's still so much more going on in your life. I'm sure you still have well, ideas. Well, I'm on my next film. I'm on my next film, yes. Right. I have a great idea for my next film. Will you come back? If I'm alive. <laughs> All right, then that's a deal. How about that? Joan Crone, thanks so much for sharing all your wonderful stories and who you are. And uh, you set the bar really high. You really do. And uh, it is. It's been... all by mistake. Whatever. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sandy. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Nobody